You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, everybody. This is Randy Bolander on the Third Cup of Coffee podcast, and there has never been a better day for a third cup of coffee in the city of Kansas City, where it is gray, overcast, kind of a moody, wet day. I just kind of want to wear flannel and look out the window with my feelings. It's dark out there. So we are throwing down coffee two cups at a time because that's how we cope. Do you remember about a month ago, I did a segment called Randy's Fearless Predictions for the future of the church or something like that. I know fearless predictions was a part of the title and they were fearless because I just didn't have any fear. I had nothing to lose. So I, you know, it wasn't like if I was wrong, anybody cared. Maybe my two listeners might've cared, but one of the things that I said I felt was coming was the death of the big meeting. So the big meeting is dead. What I meant by that, of course, is large Sunday gatherings, I just think, are going away for a while. It doesn't mean the church is not going to gather. It just means what we've known as the big extravaganza may not be something that is a part of the future. This morning, grab my phone, check the news. Turns out yesterday, North Point, massive church in Atlanta, 30,000 people, seven locations, announced that they will not be meeting for the rest of 2020, for the rest of the year, completely all video. Andy Stanley, who's the pastor, said, even if we did reopen, we certainly would not be able to create a quality adult or children's worship experience with social distancing protocols in place. He's like, we just can't do it with the rules that they have in front of us. North Point came to the decision because of its size. CNN says also the difficulty that it poses for contact tracing. If a church member was diagnosed with coronavirus after attending a service, North Point would be responsible for identifying anyone who could have been exposed to that sick person. Of course, that's just completely impossible. Now, my comments to follow here are not about North Point. All right, they are the conversation starter, but these remarks are not specifically about them. I'm, I'm not really that familiar with North Point. I think I've seen Andy Stanley uh, preach on video one time, but it's just, it's just not my world. I'm, I'm sure they're fine and, and great folks. My comments are about the trend of having to close churches and the effect that I fear it will have on the body of Christ. Now, this is my concern. For believers everywhere, for whom the big meeting was their big time of engagement with God. And pastors, again, this is not about Andy Stanley whatsoever, because I have never even heard him say these things, but I have heard say things in the past. I've heard others say things like, it's the best day of the week. If you can just make it to Sunday, you can get recharged. If we can just gather, you know, it's like the devil fights us six days a week, but if we can just gather and recharge. I've seen pastors promote a survival mentality where I fight the devil six days a week, and if I can get back to church alive, I can make it another week. That idea, which leads to Sunday morning being the focus point of a person's spiritual growth, is going to lead people to fall away because their main time of engagement with God, which doesn't happen the other five or six days of the week, is suddenly gone, and they don't know how to do it. We have been producing services rather than disciples, and that scares me. That 
weighs on me because many of these are very good people who truly do love the Lord. They've just never been taught to walk things out for themselves. That's my concern. The big meeting, dying, and how many people have leaned on that for their sole source of spiritual nourishment. We have made mistakes in that manner. And we have got to figure out how to feed people and teach them how to feed themselves. Now, earlier this week, I asked for some questions. Got some great ones. In fact, I could record forever on the questions that I got. Said I would pick one. Ended up picking two, because two of them were just too great. And this is what I was looking for, the more general questions. Now, there were some that were very specific and a little bit thorny and actually looked kind of fun to step into. But um, I was looking for ones that would, you know, address most of my listeners rather than just the person who asked the question. Somebody asked me, I once heard you say, God doesn't respond to need. He responds to faith. Will you elaborate? And here we go. The idea that God doesn't respond to need, he responds to faith, is a blatantly stolen idea. Okay, let me give you the background on this. About five years ago, I was in a Mexican restaurant in Texas eating chips and queso with Dutch sheets. Dutch wrote a great book called Intercessory Prayer about 15 years ago, has written a ton of books since then, including a great little paperback called The Pioneer Spirit. If you're a church planter, if you're starting something new, you're starting a business, you feel like you just do not fit in the setting that you're in, get a hold of his little book called The Pioneer Spirit. I would encourage you to borrow it from somebody because I looked on Amazon and it's going for a hundred bucks used. Like, I don't even know, Dutch, if you're listening and you have a case of these, kick them my way. I could feed my kids on a box of those Pioneer Spirit books. I've got one somewhere. I'm not quite sure where. But in this season, he and I are sitting down over uh, chips and queso, and my family was in a tight spot financially. And on top of that, in a few weeks later, we would hear that Scout, our 10th child, would be available for adoption, which would in turn cost us roughly a zillion dollars. Okay. Now, at that point, I didn't know I needed a zillion dollars. I just knew I was pretty close to broke. And I was telling Dutch about our situation, how it was weighing on my heart. Dutch is the friend who you want to go to when you want to know the truth. He's not necessarily the one you want to go to when you want to feel better. But if you want to hear the truth, he's your man. Eventually, you will feel better, but you need to hear the truth first. And I remember Dutch putting his chips down and looking at me and saying, Randy, God doesn't respond to need. He responds to faith. Look around the world. There are needy people everywhere. Some parts of the world are full of people who have greater need than you will ever know. If God was going to respond to need, he would start with them first, not you. And then he lays out the example of what caught God's eye down through history, and it was not need, it was faith. Romans 4 tells us Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. What was credited to him? His faith. If you read Hebrews 11 over and over and over, it's faith. By faith, Abel. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Sarah. By faith, Isaac. By faith, Moses. By faith, Rahab. Everybody who makes it into that chapter, male, female, leader, prostitute, all of them were rewarded according to their faith, even though there were needier people in the world. Now, I understand that God is sovereign. 
He can respond to anything or anyone for any reason. But if he always responded to need, we would not have needy people in the world. And my personal stories of victory are not connected to my times of need. They're connected to my times of faith. Literally a few weeks later, we get a phone call. At this point, we have nine kids, including Anna, Mercy, Cadence, and Creed, two sets of twins who have the same birth mom. She had just had a little boy who we later named Scout and, of course, is a part of our family now. But at this time, he didn't have a name, and we had no legal standing over him, and we had no money. It was a tight time. So Kelsey and I started to pray, and faith rose up within us. And I don't mean this was like we prayed for 21 days. I mean, this was like 10 minutes. We prayed and we had faith that that little guy was supposed to be ours, even though there was no legal path forward and there was no finances to make it happen. The Lord responded to our faith and we started talking to friends and sharing the story and we raised over $20,000 in the first 24 hours of announcing that we were going to pursue Scout. Now, people may have responded to need, but I felt that God responded to our faith. And here's why you want a God that responds to faith. Faith can grow. You can have more than you have now. Do you really want to grow in need or in lack to get his attention? I have had both at times, but it feels like God connects with my faith, not my need. Is he compassionate? Absolutely. He's compassionate when he doesn't squish me like a bug, which is what I deserve. But he rewards my faith. So you're saying, well, but I'm in need. Then stir your faith. If you're in need, stir your faith, because that's what catches his heart. So second question I got that I thought was probably the most universal was, how do you healthily, healthily, how do you, in a healthy way, let me reword the question, in a healthy way, how do you kindly argue something with someone that disagrees strongly? In other words, how do you argue something in a healthy way and reflect the character of Christ? Well, first of all, what makes you think I do? I mean, I could be terrible at this. Some of you are thinking, well, you sound so rational on the podcast. Well, you'll notice I'm the only one on the podcast. Of course I'm calm, cool, and collected. I don't have you people who disagree with me shouting at me, and I'm not shouting back at you. Of course, I've argued in ways that were not healthy, in ways that were unkind, but I really try not to. And here are some things that I find helpful when I find myself in a debate and it's getting a little heated. I remind myself to listen long enough to be able to articulate the opposite position. Let me say that again. Listen long enough to be able to articulate the opposite position. If you cannot repeat their position clearly, you haven't thought about it or listened. You've only paused while they took a breath so that you could repeat what you would have said no matter what they said, right? Have you ever been in an argument and you're literally just waiting for them to stop talking so you can say what you know you're going to say? Listen long enough to be able to articulate the opposite position. Something that happens when you do that is sometimes you're able to repeat back what they are saying and you realize, doggone it, it sounds a lot smarter when I say it. Like that, there's some truth there. 
listen long enough to be able to articulate the opposite position. Another thing that I try and do is to differentiate between facts and positions. Some of you will go to the map on the idea of a position, of an opinion. You will argue to the mat on that. Don't argue over things that are debatable like that. Know what are facts and know what are your opinions and admit it when you need to research something a little better. Finally, and, and this is probably the best governor for me personally, is to ask myself, why do I want to be right? Like, why do I want to win this? What's my point here? What's my end goal? If I come off the top ropes with an elbow jammed to the guy's forehead and I win this argument, then what? Proverbs eighteen nineteen says, an offended friend is harder to win back than a fortified city. Arguments separate friends like a gate locked with bars. Ask yourself, what would it really matter if I didn't finish this argument and I did not win? What is the worst that could happen from them being wrong? There's a great scene from the West Wing. If you know me, that's every scene from the West Wing. But in this particular great scene, the president and the first lady have had a spat, which they are wont to do, a rather contentious relationship. But in this particular scene, she is feeling some remorse, and she tells him, I was wrong, however, and he cuts her off. He says, no, 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 however, just be wrong. Just stand there in your wrongness and be wrong and get used to it. Some people are genetically incapable of letting people around them be wrong. They want to force them to be right. They almost physically can't be in the presence of someone who disagrees with them, and so they want to fix it and fix them. If that's you, if you respond so viscerally to people who look at things differently than you, this sounds like it's a lot about you, not them. Some of you say, but I'm so passionate about this issue. And really, you're just passionate about being right and others admitting it. It's not even the issue. It's the argument that you like. And if it weren't this issue, you'd argue something else. Realize that most of life is gray, not black and white. And if you're at a two and your friend is at a five on the issue and you think they're crazy, somewhere there's someone who is at a one on that issue and they think you're as crazy as you think your friend is. I realize I'm telling, it sounds like I'm telling you not to argue. And to an extent, I am. Most of what we argue about are not life and death issues. And we really do catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. You very rarely argue someone into agreement. Even the Bible says it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. If anyone could argue us into repentance, it would be the Lord. And he wins us with kindness. Your kindness will do more than your best argument. This week in our church, as we meet on Zoom continually, uh, we talked a lot about Acts 4 and 5 and the idea of how does the church operate in that passage so there were none in need? And what does it mean to give liberally to our brother? I'm going to follow up in just a moment with that recording. Acts 4, 
and five grab your bottles. and five I will move in and out of that a little bit but if you keep that passage open you will uh, have a good idea of, of kind of where we're going it's a really very very well-known passage but I hopefully want to look at it from a new angle we're jumping into a storyline here in Acts 4 and 5 that is ripe for misinterpretation on uh, on really on two different angles the first it's got a couple of strikes against it the first strike against it in Acts 4 and 5 is kind of what I call clerical the greater point being made in this passage bridges chapter four and chapter five. And we've got to remember that the chapter breaks and the verses are not inspired. The words are inspired, but all of those chapter breaks, that's, that was all added later. If you took John the Apostle to the Chiefs game and he saw the guy in the end zone holding the John 316 sign, he wouldn't be able to tell you what John 316 is. He wrote it, but he didn't break up those verses like they did later. And uh, here in this passage in Acts, the greater storyline covers Acts 4 and 5. And people often don't read them together. A lot of times people sit down and say, I want to read a chapter. I want to read maybe two chapters. And we stop at the end of a chapter. If we do that, we miss the greater story here. Um, so that's why we're looking at the, at the two together. The second strike against this passage when it comes to clear interpretation is it involves the murky waters where money and the human heart come together. Whenever there's a confluence of strong streams like that, there's a little bit of a chaos to the pattern of the flow. If you want to cloud any issue or any conversation, just throw out the idea, hey, let's talk about money. Uh, I mean, I would try that if we're gathering at Thanksgiving when you're all sitting around the table and you pass the, uh, you pass the potato salad. Hey, let's talk about what everybody makes. Let's talk, you know, it's, it just gets really murky really quickly. We are so sensitive about what we have in relation to what others have, that when the Bible tells a story against the backdrop of money, we think that money is the point. Money is very rarely the point of these stories because God cares significantly less about money than we do. God uses stories about money to illustrate realities within our own heart. Our reaction to these stories is a little bit like when we, you know, you tell your 14 year old, um, you really need to mow the yard. And he starts complaining and saying, well, you know, it's, it's not that high. And the point is not mowing the yard. The point you're trying to teach them is personal responsibility. And all they see is the, is the backdrop of the story. And so when Jesus talks about money or the Bible talks about money, it's often just the backdrop for a completely different discussion. This is a passage that stirs up what I would call a lot of baggage in people's hearts because everybody wants to assume that they have the purest of motives, and especially when it comes to things like generosity. But I don't even want to talk about the idea of generosity. Of course, everybody wants to be generous. I want to talk about it in terms of giving money, because it comes more personal, and it challenges our heart. So this morning, I want to lay aside our bags and just kind of read the text. And it does divide into two stories, one in chapter four, one in chapter five, but the overarching lesson involves both chapters. In the, as the story opens, we find the church kind of finding its feet. It's in those initial days where uh, activity after the ascension and uh, the inflowing of the Holy Spirit, suddenly they have 8,000 people come to Jesus in just a really rapid succession. And many of those of the first 3,000 were out of towners, and that causes a whole different set of problems. The early verses of Acts 2 tells us that people who were drawn to the 
what the Holy Spirit was doing there, had gathered in Jerusalem from all across the known world. So when Peter preached that first sermon, it was to a crowd almost like the United Nations. The expression in the Bible there is that it was men from every nation under heaven gathered. Now that isn't just strategic. It was strategic because certainly the message of the gospel went out to all directions, but it was also beautiful to the Lord. In that early church, it was exceptionally diverse, but also its diversity meant it was also exceptionally needy. That diverse, displaced crowd far from home, came and joined themselves to this body of people, but they came with their own needs because they were visitors in that town. So in a culture where hospitality was a huge value, this was what you might call a growth opportunity or a problem because there were a lot of people that needed a lot of hospitality. First few chapters of Acts shows us a church that is exploding in new life, but it's also struggling with logistics. It's exciting in the sense that God is doing all these new things, but there's the press of how to take care of these people as they're gathered. Where are they going to meet? How is this going to function? Uh, how does this work? We've never done this together before. It's a, like a very intense version of what we're struggling with. Imagine 8,000 new converts, many of them from out of town, no email, no place to meet, no Zoom. But even within that, what is described as beautiful and it's foreshadowed by an intense prayer meeting that Jesus had before he was crucified. Now stay in Acts 4 and 5, but I want to jump back just for a moment to John 17. In the hours before his arrest, Jesus is praying, and he's praying about the hours that will come regarding the crucifixion, but he also prays for his disciples and those who the disciples will lead to him. Jesus, even before the cross, is thinking global expansion. And in John 17, 20 and 21, he prays to the Father. He says, I do not ask for these only. I'm not just praying for the guys that are sleeping down the hill, that I asked to come pray for me, and now they're asleep over there. I'm not just praying for them, but also for those who would believe in me through their word, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prays, those guys that are down the hill sleeping, and those that they will lead to me. I pray that there'd be unity, and that it would be a sign to the world, and that the world would believe. Now, this is even true of today. The world has had enough of a disjointed church. Your unbelieving neighbor who has something stuck in his craw about the church and how the church works, most of those complaints settle around how we've treated one another. Most of their complaints are not theological. Most of their complaints are because somebody in the church acted in an unchristlike way to somebody else, often in the church, and they have stories to tell you about that. So you fast forward to the text in Acts, and starting in verse 32, Jesus' prayer from Acts 17 is starting to come true. The early church is a partial answer to Jesus' prayers. Acts 4, 32 to 35. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart, and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for many were owners of lands or houses, sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So as Luke sets this up, he notices 
unprecedented unity and a strong sense of a common cause. He said they were living or indicated they were living out Jesus's prayer. They were in this together. They were of one heart and one soul of one heart. They were of one faith of one belief. And then one of soul, they were of one identity. They had an exceptional understanding of this idea of us. There's a, there's a us here. This isn't just a meeting. This isn't just an event. We somehow have become an entity. Up until now, they might have spoken of themselves as an event, but that was shifting and they were becoming a group. The next two stories cement that idea. This isn't just an event. This is something that the Lord is building. Acts said that nobody considered their belongings their own. In other words, they didn't come to the assembly of believers with a list of needs, but they would come with a list of assets. It's almost the opposite of how we choose to worship where we're going to worship today. Oftentimes we start looking for a community and we look at what they offer. In the book of Acts, they look to what they could contribute. Now, granted, there wasn't a church building on every corner. They didn't have six or eight denominations in a five-mile radius that they could pick from. It's a different world now. We have options. We can do different things. You could have dialed into a hundred different churches easily within this city or thousands across the nation. We have options, and I appreciate differences in congregations and differences in denominations, and sometimes a sense of choice, though, allows us to disconnect from believers in a communal way. Psychologists tell us that the greater the number of choices we have, often the greater confusion. It's true with children, and it's true with adults. If you've got kids, you know when it's time to go, you would never say, Johnny, what shoes would you like to wear? That is a rookie mistake, okay? You would never do that. You would say, Johnny, you might say, do you want the blue shoes or the green shoes? Or you might just say, Johnny, put these shoes on. But if you say, what shoes would you like to wear? It's another 40 minutes till you get to the van. It's no different for adults. Lots of choices often lead us to confusion and not making a choice at all. Example, my grandparents drank grocery store coffee. They liked it. My parents drank grocery store coffee and they liked it. And then came Starbucks, which on the surface sells coffee, but really sells options. Mathematicians tell us that there are 80,000 different varieties of drinks you could order just off the menu by altering it at Starbucks. Sometimes I have suspected that the person in line in front of me has ordered every one of those 80,000 drinks that day. If you drank two drinks every day, it would take you 109 years to finish the, the expanded menu at Starbucks. Now that's an extreme example, but choice doesn't always lead to happiness, which is why that person ahead of you is standing there and staring. They, they originally said, I just want coffee. And they go in there and they stare and they don't know what they want. Do expanded options that you can never possibly taste make coffee any better? No better than expanded channels made you like television anymore. The early church didn't have 80,000 drink options. It didn't have 200 channels to choose from. They had each other and they approached it as such. What can I bring that others need? Not what can I go and choose and pick from because I like it a certain way. And that result of a mind shift from what are my options to what is my commitment to this group made a radical difference to people. 
And the writer of Acts uses a really strong phrase. And if you are into logistics at all, this makes you go, how does this work? He said, there was not a needy person among them. I have so many questions. How on earth could there not be a needy person among them? Suspend for a second our questions about the mechanics of it and consider what this might have meant to the heart of God, that the approach from the people of God to one another had been a dream in God's heart from the beginning. Even before Jesus prayed, Lord, let them be one. Go all the way back to Deuteronomy 15. God is laying out a pattern for dealing with the poor. And he puts forth some rules that give the poor significant opportunity to better themselves. The primary rule to protect the poor in Deuteronomy 15 was the idea of canceling debts every seven years. That meant that all borrowing was short-term. Nobody got into long-term borrowing. And I'm guessing that near the end of that seven-year cycle, there wasn't a whole lot of borrowing. Because you would realize when you're loaning money at the, you know, year six, you may not get it back. But the result was there was also no long-term debt. And then in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 15, God initiates the phrase that the book of Acts echoes. He says, but there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance to possess. It was the dream of the Lord that the people of God would care for one another and that there would be an opportunity for there to be no poor. Now, to be fair, Jesus also says the poor will always be with you. And later on in Deuteronomy, it talks about the fact that there probably all will always be poor. His point was, can we make a system that gives them an opportunity to better themselves? Can we work together so they don't have to stay that way? Now, to believe this, you've got to believe the idea that wealth can be created. There's an economic theory called zero-sum gain that says there's only so much pie to go around, and if your pie is bigger than mine, that means that you must have cut off some of mine. That actually doesn't sound like what God is describing here. God seems to indicate that given the right opportunity, wealth can be created, and he offered a way for the poor to be taken care of until they could take care of themselves and actually contribute to others. Verse 11 there in that passage in Deuteronomy, he does say, the poor will always, there will be people who will not take you up on this. There will be people who through their choices or, or whatever may always struggle and be poor. But even them, he says, be gracious to them. It was his heart that they would find a way out, but having been dealt graciously with, with their fellow believers, no matter what direction they went. And in the book of Acts, it says they're actually achieving that goal. People were being taken care of and were given an opportunity better to themselves and contribute to the church as well. Good government, whether it's civil or it's church government, gives people an opportunity to better themselves rather than to remain reliant on everyone else. And that's what the early church was doing. Others were bringing their abilities and their finances to the table. They were caring for one another, including those who had come from far away and perhaps needed more help than anybody else. This idea is beautiful, but it strikes fear in the heart of some people because immediately you understand how this could go bad in a heartbeat. We have all given something to someone and it actually damaged the relationship. We have all seen people receive things and it did not go well. Because giving resources away can be problematic and it can be difficult. Uh, you know, years ago, we started a foundation to help people adopt. And we were going to raise money and turn around and hand out grants. And we did that. But boy, that sounds easier than it really is. It's a difficult, tricky thing to give things away. 
The idea that everyone was taken care of in the New Testament doesn't mean that they helped people without asking any questions. And if you look at the early church, benevolence actually uh, came with some measure of, of vetting. It doesn't talk about it right here in the book of Acts, but later on, still in the early, early years of the church, they asked questions about who they helped. They asked questions like, who is really needy? 1 Timothy 5.3 says, honor widows who are really widows. Like, like vet the need here. They ask questions like, who is without family support? 1 Timothy 5.4 talks if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first lean on them. They ask questions like, who is not able to care for themselves? 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. In other words, if somebody's not willing to participate, we don't necessarily help that person. They also ask in 1 Timothy 5, 9 through 13, I'm not going to read it, but it talks about who is really serving God, and it talks about those widows that are serving the congregation and helping them. Now, the goal of these qualifiers isn't to remove people from the responsibility of the church. It's not to say, okay, well, they're not our fault, but it's to make sure that the church is able to be responsible to those who need support. In fact, we find later in the development of the early church, some people do take advantage of this. The early church fathers guarded against it, but they didn't let fear stop them from meeting other people's needs. At the end of your life, do you want to say, nobody took advantage of me? Or do you want to say, I walked in unity and purpose with the people of God, and we took care of one another, and it worked well most of the time? That first statement, nobody ever took advantage of me, it's doable, but it sounds really lonely. And it points to significant control issues in our own life. Is that our highest calling to never be taken advantage of or to serve as many as we can, as best we can, understanding that at times we may be taken advantage of? Now, back to the book of Acts, chapter four, where the writer gives a specific example of how this benevolence was provided for. Acts 4, 36 and 37. Thus, Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now here we've got a documented example about what the writer is speaking about early in the passage when it says, for as many who are owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds. It's like, here's the mechanics of how this works. It's a particularly interesting example because apparently the sacrifice was considerable, both in amount and in significance. Joseph, or Barnabas, was giving away something he normally would not even have had to give away. When the tribes of Israel were allotted plots of land in the Old Testament, not everybody got the same deal. And the most unusual allotment was to the Levites, who of all of the 12 tribes got no land at all. As they're allotting out the tribe, can you imagine you're sitting there and you're, you're of the tribe of Levi and, uh, you know, the tribe of Dan gets this valley and, and the other tribe gets this valley and the other tribe gets this mountain range. And Levites, what do you get? Deuteronomy 18, 1 and 2. The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among the brothers the Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. 
So the Levites don't get land. They're the only tribe of the, of the 12 that don't get any land. They are told you get to serve in the temple. You get the presence of God. Congratulations, your brother got rich. You get Jesus. Well, that's nice. I can almost imagine them going, you know, can I, can I get maybe Jesus and maybe just a little land? I mean, is there any way for me to get something? But they got no property. So fast forward centuries in a culture in which land remained in families for long periods of time. It wasn't necessarily illegal for a Levite to have land, but there was no residual value or no residual inheritance from their ancestors. It was like they came to the table and they could play Monopoly, but everybody else had been playing Monopoly for two hours already and there was hotels built everywhere. And it's hard to engage in, in the idea of owning land when everyone else was given some or their ancestors were given some. Somewhere along the line, perhaps by marriage or by being very frugal, Joseph or Barnabas had amassed enough money to buy property. And in that way, his gift was actually all the more special. He wasn't expected to have this in the first place. But he came to the realization that part of his Levitical upbringing was very profound. His inheritance was found in what God was doing, not money and land. Way back in Deuteronomy, they said, your inheritance will be, in the, will be right here in the temple. You, your inheritance will be the presence of God. And you'll be provided for as you minister in the temple. But that's what you get. I can almost hear Joseph or Barnabas say, my grandfather served in the temple and the Lord took care of him. I am going to serve others and Jesus is going to take care of me. I can imagine him looking at the property, then looking at the activity of God and saying, I want to go all in with what God is doing here. What am I going to do with this property in eternity? You think I want to live in this dump in the millennial kingdom? When, when things are, are going to be made completely new, do I want to have held onto this property? I want to invest now so that I've got rewards later. And I believe more in what God is doing right now than I do in that piece of property that I fought and scrapped for. Now, you know, looking through this whole group, this is a smart group of people who have often planned ahead for your lives. You are not haphazard people at all. Maybe you sacrificed as you raised kids, you did things all along the way that you were supposed to do. And you have what you have because you were diligent and the Lord rewarded that time. And maybe for the first time in generations, maybe your parents couldn't do it. Maybe your grandparents couldn't do it. But for the first time in generations, you have the ability to give with some element of freedom and not put yourself in, in, in difficult situations. You've got an opportunity to do what maybe nobody in your family member has ever done before. And you can embrace Matthew 6 at a level that nobody else could have in the past. Matthew 6, 19 to 21, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. I hear all kinds of people say, well, you know, that's not really about money. It is also about money. It's about investing in the future, the real future, not just the future of our own lives. And Barnabas makes a calculated decision here. This wasn't emotion. It was the clear-headed intent of a diligent man who had saved his money and bought property. He said, my inheritance is going to be in God, not in lands. And I am surrendering this because I want to give generously beyond what is expected and without strings to a place where thieves can never steal and corruption can never touch it. The economy can't trash and demolish it. 
and moths can't touch it. Now, I find it interesting that this passage bridges the two chapters, where we're going to read in, in a second here of another story similar to this, and neither story give us a key detail that we would think which is important, which is the amount that is given. We don't learn it in this chapter. We don't learn it in the next chapter. If you think the story is about, you would think that in a story about giving that we would hear more about specific amounts, but giving is never really about numbers. It's always about the heart. Even in this passage of the Bible where amounts are spoken of, it's usually to de-emphasize the gift's impact and emphasize the giver's heart. If you look at Mark 12, 41 to 44, it actually does talk about real numbers. And this first verse, you know, I've said it before, but I would, I would be so interested in watching this happen. Talking about Jesus, he sat down opposite the treasury and watched people putting money in the offering box. Can you imagine? You go to the temple and Jesus just sits down by the plate and just watches. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, sorry, I've got my, my phone is freaking out. You would think I'd have shut this off. I don't understand. She doesn't understand. I think I shut this off. I think I shut, now she's repeating. But I can search the web oh. for it. Sorry about that. Mark 4, uh, 12, 41 to 44. Gotta love it. Jesus is sitting down across from the treasury. And a poor widow come in and put in two copper coins and make a penny. And he calls his disciples and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contribute out of their abundance, but she gave out of her poverty, has put in everything she has, all she had to live on. Why does he point out the specific amount? If it's a matter of furthering the work of God, doesn't a larger amount make more sense? If it's about amounts, I mean, I've had $100 and I've had $1,000. I can do more with $1,000. But God's not looking at amounts. He's looking for hearts because he can do more with willing hearts than he can with big dollars. So Joseph or Barnabas, he saw both. With others, he saw significant amounts and cold, dead hearts, and it did not go well. So Joseph or Barnabas gives a significant amount. We don't know the exact amount, but the Lord mentions it, or, or the, the writer of Acts mentions it as a, as a outstanding thing. We go to chapter five now, and we see a very different story. But a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Now, scholars and theologians are quick to point out here, Ananias was under no obligation to contribute the entire amount of the sale of this house. It wasn't a tax. He didn't owe this to anybody. It wasn't a tithe. It was an offering from a sale of home that he didn't need to sell. There are multiple accounts in the New Testament of Christians owning property and keeping it. Peter even tells Ananias, well, the house remained unsold. Wasn't it yours? After you sold it, it was yours to do what you wished. He, he didn't owe this to anybody. His sin wasn't in giving a portion 
of the money. His sin was in misrepresenting the gift that he was bringing to God. And for most of us in this case, the application is not really financial. The application is in what we bring to the Father and how we talk about it and how we represent it to him and represent it to others. Lord, you have my whole heart, except for that dark area that I don't want to talk about. And we misrepresent the gift that we bring. Lord, you have all of my affection, but please don't talk about that relationship that I have that's grown more, more uh, familiar than is biblical. Lord, I give you my everything, but don't bless or, or, or don't mess with my life plan or the life plan I have for my kids. We bring gifts to him that we represent one way. And he goes, no, 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 don't, don't say it that way because you're not giving everything that you say that you're giving. When we start telling the Lord that we are giving everything, but we're holding back finances or energy or emotion from him, we are not far from the sin of Ananias. Just like the point of Joseph or Barnabas's gift was not the amount, the point of Ananias's sin was not the amount. It was an issue of the heart. And in response, God revealed the condition of his heart by demonstrating it on his body. What follows is one of the most horrifying passages anywhere in scripture. Acts 5, 5 and 6. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. And a great fear came upon all those who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now, we don't picture this accurately, and I think it's because we've watched too many Westerns. You know, if you ever watch a Western, a guy gets shot somewhere in the bar, and he crumples to the floor. Then he crawls out to his horse, and he scribbles a note to his mother, and he puts it in the saddlebag, and he slaps the horse, and the horse, it takes a guy 40 minutes to die in a Western. That's not what happened here. He simultaneously heard Peter and died as he listens. It was that quick. The word the original language uses here for dying is a Greek word primarily used in accounts of death that are the result of divine judgment. He did not have a heart attack and, and die. He didn't have a stroke and die. That would have been less gruesome. God took him out. It is the same word used for death regarding Herod in Acts 12, where the people are all chanting that Herod is a god. And in verse 23, it says, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. It's that violent of it. It's like the same word. It's the same concept that we find in Judges 4.21, where Jael drove a tent peg through Sisera's head and nailed him to the ground. And because death is such a dark topic, all cultures have always used euphemisms regarding death. And maybe, maybe you do too. You know, we say people passed away. If we're, if we're being lighthearted about it, we may say they kicked the bucket. Or, you know, we've, heard, we've said uh, making the long distance call from the horizontal phone booth. You know, we use different phrases to refer to the fact that we don't want to say that people died. The euphemism in the Bible for these kinds of specific deaths, what they would say in that time was death at the hands of heaven. It was a recognized penalty in Old Testament and in Jewish law. My point here is nobody wondered if he had suddenly had a heart attack and died. 
clearly this was the work of God. He withered and died at the hands of God on the spot. The closest parallel we would probably have in the Bible would be in Leviticus 10, where Nadab and Abihu overstepped their authority and placed fire on the altar that the writer says was strange fire or, uh, or called profane fire. They weren't authorized to offer this sacrifice. And the fire of God comes down off of the altar and consumes them on the spot. It is death at the hands of heaven. No wonder a great fear comes upon other believers who were surrounded him. And no wonder he gets such an unceremonious burial. Who wants to be the pallbearer for the guy who dies at the hands of heaven? I cannot imagine they were lining up and say, well, let me help you with that. Now, they take him out. They, they don't offer any kind of ceremony. They very quickly take him out and immediately bury him. Now, this is a well-known story, so I don't need to read the rest of the passage to its fullest extent, but obviously, Sapphira, the wife who has been in on this ruse the entire time, comes in, and Peter offers her an out, asking her specifically if they sold the land for that amount. This is the apostolic equivalent of looking at your five-year-old and saying, did you eat the cookie when you know good and well that the five-year-old ate the cookie? And you're offering them an opportunity. You're like, please get this right. Please get this right, little guy. She doesn't get it right. And the, the ESV describes it this way. He says to her, how is it that you have agreed to test the spirit of the Lord? Some other translations say it even more strongly that Peter asks her, how could you? How could you do this? I think Peter was pained at the unnecessary death of his friends. Unnecessary because they didn't need to cause it. Because their lack of authenticity about how much they were giving, how much they were bringing to the table is what caused it. Of course, Sapphira doubles down on the lie. She suffers the exact same fate of her husband, death at the hands of heaven. And what seems like a throwaway line at the end of the story signifies a significant shift in the hearts and minds of the church of that day. Acts 5.11 says, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard these things. It is the first time in the book of Acts that they refer to themselves as a church. They weren't just believers. They weren't just the people. They suddenly were an entity. They're like, oh, there's an us here. Up until this point, they were a group of disconnected individuals who all felt and believed the same thing. But in light of this story in the, about giving and about sacrifice, they made this shift from you and me and him and her to us. Us happens when we are in sync in heart and soul, both in our beliefs and our identity. Us happens when we're committed to taking care of one another. Us happens when we sacrifice for one another, when we're honest about what we're bringing to the table. We don't overpromise or minimize our gift because it's given with our whole heart. When we find ourselves united in heart and in belief and in soul and identity, at that point, all of us become us, a group of individuals, no more, but actually a body, a church. When we do, when we become that entity, that us, Jesus said, that's what the gates of hell can't prevail against. The victory that you are looking for in your individual lives, as we're all kind of sequestered, I mean, in some ways, Zoom is a perfect picture of what life is like right now. Everybody in a little box is reaching out. The victory that you are looking for in your individual lives probably lies in unity with a group of people that you're looking at here in the screen. 
It certainly does not lie in your own efforts or you would have it already. We have barely touched the edges of what this means, but I see our trajectory here. And the question that the Lord has for us is, what can you bring on behalf of others? How can you demonstrate unity together, providing for one another that the, the testimony that is seen is one that draws other people to the message of Jesus? I think we are honestly, one of the reasons I'm stepping into this, this book that we're going to look at on Wednesday nights about community of kindness is we've got to engage uh, a demonstration of the love of the Father and a love for one another that our community can see. Because when they see that, Jesus's prayer is answered. He says, oh, they're becoming one now. They're becoming one, and others see that they're becoming one. And when others see that they become one, they are drawn to the story of Jesus. It's an intense story, Acts 4 and 5, but it is not about specific amounts. It is about coming to the Lord with our whole heart and caring for one another and recognizing that we're a body. We're not just little windows of people separated across, even across the nation, that God is knitting us together for a purpose. And uh, I'm excited to see what that purpose is going to be. Father, we love you. And we thank you for your graciousness to us, even in times when maybe we have misrepresented our gift, we've not fully, uh, not even fully considered for ourselves what it means to give you everything. We pray that our gifts to you would be pure, what we give in the way of, of finances, but what we give in the way of care for one another. And we pray that there would be no needy among us, that you would show us how to care for one another in a way that honors you and in a way that gives them an opportunity to better themselves, and in a way that draws people to know you. Even in this season when we are so disconnected, Lord, connect us in ways that we could not even think possible. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for joining us today. Most of the teachings on this podcast come from a Zoom teaching that I do on Sunday mornings. We also do prayer meetings throughout the week. If you'd like to join us, go to zoefoundationkc.com. That's zoe, Z-O-E, foundationkc.com. Sign up for the email, which will get you the links to join us for prayer on Zoom. Glad to have you today. Have a good one. God of the break and shadow. See you.